This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Isabel Ayande, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. It really is my privilege. I have followed your career throughout my career. I started off as a bookseller and then I went into publishing and I have sold and talked and read about your books for most of my life. Thank you very much. I need people like you promoting my book. You do. And we need you to provide us with stories to read. Isabel is a novelist, a feminist, and a philanthropist. She's one of the most widely read authors in the world, having sold more than 75 million books. Chilean-born in Peru, Isabel won worldwide acclaim in 1982 with the publication of her first novel, The House of the Spirits. Since then, she has authored more than 25 best-selling and critically acclaimed books. In addition to her work as a writer, Isabel devotes much of her time to human rights causes. She has received 15 honorary doctorates, including one from Harvard University, and in 2014, President Barack Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honour. So it is my honour here today to have her and to talk with Isabel about the soul of a woman, which she describes as a reflection of her feminist storyline through her own personal history. I can't tell you how much that book resonated with me. And I love the fact that very early on in the book, you talk about the fact that you're a feminist from when you were a child. Talk to me about that. (laughs) Well, um, I come from a weird family. My mother married against her parents' wishes to the wrong man, my father. And uh, they were married for four years. She had three kids. And he abandoned her before the last child was born. And uh, she was very young and not prepared for work. She had been raised to be somebody's mother and somebody's wife. So she returned to her father's house. And I grew up in my grandfather's house. Um, It was a male household, my grandfather and my bachelor uncles, because my grandmother died very early. And my mother was a charity case. She had, of course, she lived in the house and and my grandfather paid for the schools and all that. but, But she didn't have any money of her own, no freedom. There was no divorce in Chile. The only way that you could get out of a marriage was by an annulment, which was um, a legal trick to get out of the marriage. But this was a very Catholic and conservative society. So my mother was married by the church also. Um, Because she was very young and very pretty and a single mother of three kids, she was watched very, very closely. Her reputation was at stake. So I grew up seeing my mother very limited. 
in what she could do and her resources were very limited. And I was very angry at it, but I didn't know what made me angry except seeing my mother so defenseless, so vulnerable. And later in time, I mean, in puberty and adolescence, I realized that this anger that I had carried all my life was very, very precise. It was targeted against male authority, all kinds of male authority, including the church. By age 15, I left the church, never went back. Not because I didn't believe in God, that came later. Uh, it was because I couldn't stand the idea of a man giving, telling me what to think or what to believe. Feminists had not arrived in Chile yet. It took me, I mean, many years. I must have been around 18, 20, when I realized that I wasn't a lunatic, that there was a movement out there called the Women's Lib, and millions of women were feeling the same thing I was feeling. But it had not only a name, there were writers that were writing, there were activists um, that, that were working in, in, in a very articulate, intelligent way. Also, when I read the books, for example, by Germaine Greer, I thought, well, they also had a sense of humor. And that, that was good for me because I felt that if you can laugh at something, you can really change things. I think it's interesting that you say that they had a sense of humor. And you talk about this in your book that very often, and you were, I mean, they were trying to prescribe you tablets, or, you know, <laughs> because you were angry, because you were aware. And there is this misconception about feminism that you are, if you're a feminist, that you are angry, that you are not attractive, that as a female, that you are... Uh, you've got hair under your armpits, all those stereotypes. When I was little, I felt angry like you. What I noticed, I went to a Catholic school, and of course I've left, left religion since then as well. But what I noticed, and you talk about this as well, is really the church, the government, and, you know, I grew up in Australia, it seemed to be all the odds were always stacked up against me. Mm -hmm. Because every institution I was in, the women were second, if you like. But put down, of course. Of course. Yeah. So I, I was very aware of that too. Fortunately, uh, in my 20s, I, I must have been around 26, 27, a, a new magazine started in Chile. It was a feminine magazine, but with a feminist slant. And I could work there for six years, the six years that uh, between 1967 and 1973. In 1973, we had a military coup and the magazine, they fired all of us and the magazine continued to be a glossy fashion magazine, but it lost all interest, really. And But during those six years, the magazine changed the culture in Chile and I was part of that. So I felt that all the anger I had felt before was channeled into something productive and important and fun. I, I had so much fun in this struggle. And I keep telling young women today, the best thing about this is that we can have fun. Yeah. We, we, we can do this joyfully. We can yeah. do this together. And th this idea that in the, the United States, you know, horrible conservative radio host created the term feminazis, and the idea was that uh, feminists were these horrible people. Mm. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be that way at all. And uh, men have been very successful in depicting women, as you described, 
these hairy bitches. Well, <laughs> we know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think young women, particularly here in Australia, are starting to embrace the word again. But for a long time, I think people used to often say to me when I would raise the subject of women and women's rights, oh, don't you like men? Well, actually, I like men a lot. Of course, (laughs) what we don't like is the patriarchy. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. this is a war against the system, not against Mm. half of humanity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help that they're trying, that a lot of men, and you talk about those types of men, are trying to block women's rights. What would you say the definition of feminism? Well, let's let's start by patriarchy. We live for millennia in the patriarchy. What is the patriarchy? It's a system that give, it's a system of oppression that gives dominance to the male gender over women, other species, nature, and many other men as well, the ones who don't fit in the system. What is feminism? Feminism is an uprising against that system. And it is something that women have been trying to do for decades now that advances slowly but surely. Like every revolution, feminism starts with rage. Rage at something that is basically unfair. All revolutions start like that, but there's no roadmap. You just do whatever you can blindly. And sometimes you hit crossroads and you have to change directions or or there's a backlash and things seem to have stalled And then again, a new wave of young women push history really forward. Mm. And that is what we do. How do you think the Me Too movement relates to feminism? The Me Too movement is is the new wave. And, uh, And it's not, I have seen in the last few years, not only the Me Too movement, but but other movements that somehow it, there is an intersectionality between movements. And for example, Black Lives Matter in the United States, people go out protesting for Black Lives Matter and there the, the feminists are marching as well and young men and LGBT and all, all those movements are connected because they are all victims of the patriarchy. So in a way, this is a struggle in which now we are many more than just the feminists, just the women. We have our children and our grandchildren, male children and male grandchildren that were born and raised by us. So they are they, they are not our enemies. They are our allies. Yeah, they are. You were talking about your grandchildren being non-binary. And I wonder how that and that's we're seeing a lot of change in in identity and in sex. How do you think that affects the the voice of women? What do you think that generation is going to stand for? Inclusion, inclusion. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's included. Hmm. Sometimes, to me, I think it might be a mellowing. Would you agree with that? A mellowing of what? The um, a mellowing of the division between men and women. I think there is a mellowing um, of the division of gender. Yes. Uh, gender has become, things are not black and white anymore. Uh, and so the, the fact that there are so many grays in between makes it w- wider, as I said, more inclusive. But I don't think it's mellowed down. It's, um, no, I don't, I don't think it mellows down because we are now all in, in thinking of what kind of world we want. Uh, 
what, what world do women want? And other people who are not the, the ones that have control in the patriarchy, all the other people. First of all, we want to live without fear. We want to be safe. We want to live in peace so that our children will grow up safely. Mm. We want to be respected and heard. Mm. I want to talk about the, the institution of marriage. I know you've spoken about quite a lot and you've been married several times. Do you well, think- only three times. Only three times, yes, 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 absolutely, (laughs) only three. I'm not judging here. I think that sounds wonderful. I know you're not. I know you're not. (laughs) I've been married once. I'm I'm not up to you yet, but it could happen. And listen, I want to know, does the institution of marriage, because sometimes I, I love the institution of partnership. I love yeah. it and I value it, right? But sometimes marriage to me, the formality of marriage, the um, the politicisation of marriage, the religiousness, if you like, of marriage seems to be quite repressive to me. It is repressive. And my grandfather used to say that marriage is wonderful for men. It's a great institution for men and terrible for women. Women should never get married. Now things have changed, but at the time when my grandfather was talking, women... Even if they made a salary, the father would collect it or the husband. Uh, They couldn't even open a bank account without the the, the husband's signature and so forth. Uh, And of course, if there was an annulment of the marriage, as as I mentioned before, there was divorce in Chile, uh, father had all the rights over the children, not the mother. So uh, it, it, it is repressive. But it's changing. And now people of all genders get married. And as you said, it's a partnership. And also it's a partnership that is much easier to dissolve now than it was before. You you can break up more easily. And that's, I think, very good. Mm. And like you, I, I like the idea of a commitment to a partnership for as long as you can as, as you can be together and help each other and if it doesn't work there's always a way out mm. that we need options don't we of course we need the options now i want to but also I, we have to we have to say and this is something that feminists have been saying for decades that the idea of the family rests on the woman's shoulders or her self selflessness or her Um, commitment to the family and think first of the children and the husband before she thinks about herself and dedicated completely to the family. So it's a sacrifice of one member of the family to hold the family together. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. I want to talk about sense of place because I noticed you'd lived in Beirut, Lebanon for some time. And my parents are Lebanese. We are Lebanese Australians. And so that obviously interested me. But I went back to Beirut a few years back now, maybe six or seven years ago, and looked at my cousins who were, you know, like me. They were professionals. They were living in a in a city. They were living in Beirut. And I couldn't help thinking and observing and wondering what kind of person would I have been if my parents hadn't come to Australia. Now, I look at your history and you've moved around quite a lot. How do you think place makes the person that you are? Of course it does. When you are born, where you are born, to which family you are born, all that are the cards you are given when you are born. And you have to play those cards the best you can, but the cards are there and you can change them. And the fact that I was born in the 40s in Chile, in a social class that was Catholic, conservative, patriarchal, authoritarian, that determined a lot about my life. And of course, I rebelled against that, but that's, that requires luck in, in a way to, to have the, the good luck to see things and be able to escape. But not, not everybody has that. So you are very much determined by place. Look, uh, one of, I have a foundation and my foundation, my foundation's mission is to invest in the power of women and girls. So we support many programs in the world. One of the programs is called Too Young to Marry or Too Young to Wed. And this is a program that tries to save girls who are eight, nine years old. And the fathers marry them to men who are who could be their grandfathers easily. These girls are not prepared for sex, childbirth, any of it. They young, die young. They don't have a life of their own at all they become slaves in the household of the husband, mistreated most of the time. And their bodies are not even prepared for pregnancy. You think that girl has a choice? So she's determined by place. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your experience in India when you were handed a parcel by a woman. After my daughter died, I created, I mean, I, I wrote a book called Paula and I decided not to touch any of the income that would come from the book because it didn't belong to me, it belonged to my daughter. And I wanted to honor her somehow. Uh, but I was really very distressed in a sort of emotional void. And my husband and a friend decided to take me out of my comfort zone and we went to India. And among the many wonderful things we did, and it is a fantastic country that absolutely shakes anybody out of their comfort zone. And the beauty of it, the color, everything was so impressive. We rented a car and went to Rajasthan to a very rural area with a driver. And uh, at some point the engine was too hot. It was a very hot day. And so we stopped so that he could cool the engine with some water. And my friend Tabra and I walked to a group of women that were under a tree. And, uh, you know, we didn't share a language. So so we just touched each other and we gave them a bunch of bracelets that we had bought in the market. And so we established some kind of, of relationship with, there were a lot of little, little kids. 
And then when we were leaving, one of the women gave me this parcel of rags, as you described it. And I, I said, I thought she was trying to give me something back for the bracelets. And I said, no, no, it's not necessary. Thank you. I tried to give it back, but she wouldn't take it. So I opened these rags and inside was a newborn baby. I, I, I don't think the baby was more than a day old. The, the umbilical cord was raw there. And uh, I kissed the baby, it was tiny. I kissed the baby, blessed the baby, tried to give it back and she wouldn't take it. And in that moment, the the driver who had been honking in the, in the car came came running and he took the baby from my arms and I he gave it, I don't know, I think to another woman, I don't know. And then he sort of dragged me to the car. And when we were leaving, it took me like a minute to react. I said, why would that woman try to give me her baby? And the driver said, it was a girl. Who wants a girl? And and that, that um, was what I needed in order to know what to do with that money that I had set aside and for the rest of my life. So I created a foundation to invest in women and girls, women like that mother that was so desperate that she wanted to give me the little girl. Mm. And girls like that girl that was probably not even alive today. Mm. It struck me when I read that about that story about India, that how stories and experiences come to you when you most need them. I felt that for you at that time, you must have been in enormous grief, tremendous grief. And then that happens. A baby and, girl is, yeah. And then that happens and everything changes, you know. It's, it opens a new venue. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and, and the foundation has been going on for more than 20 years. And uh, I can't tell you how rewarding it is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel sort of desperate. And I, my daughter-in-law, Lori, she um, runs the foundation. So I said, Lori, this, we are doing nothing really. It, it, the resources are so limited. This is like a drop of water in a desert of need. And Lori always reminds me, you cannot count numbers. Think of every case. Think of every woman who has a name and a face and whose life might have changed. Mm, and every experience. I want to talk about women and aging. I've been thinking about that a lot myself as I've been growing older. And the definition of beauty, the definition of value, I think. A friend of mine once told me that she felt invisible. Well, that women much younger than me in their 50s start feeling invisible because they become invisible once they are, they are no longer in the reproductive market. Mm. I'm in my 50s too. I don't feel invisible. I think it's because I'm not looking for, I wondered at the time whether she's saying she's invisible to men or is she invisible to her friends? Is she invisible to her family? I mean, what does that mean? And I certainly, I haven't felt that yet. <laughs> Maybe it's Good just, for you. Good for you. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm not looking in the right places. But I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine, the one that I was talking about in San Francisco, and he was saying to me that what he noticed about his mother 
and a lot of her friends, is their partners died earlier than them, just of natural mm-hmm. causes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years for, for a lot of women, right? Because men die before women. And he his observation was that they found themselves in a different way. They found a different life. They found independence. They became, in a way, different women. Well, it is true that women uh, live longer, but also women marry men that are older. So, of course, they die before they do. So there is a, a large number of women and a growing number of women who live to be much older. I mean, my granddaughters will live 20 more years than I, and I will probably live more than my parents. And my parents died very old. Um, so the Dalai Lama said that it's older women who will be able to change the world. But he, he said in the West, because we have education, resources, more rights, and we are interconnected in ways that women in other places are not. But this is going to be the, this this contingency of very strong older women is growing and it will grow all over the world. And, and we will we will be the elders who will be leading the way. We have nothing to lose. We are not trying to seduce anybody. We don't have to please anybody except our pets. And we have, yeah, we, I mean, we are, we are free. And if we have health and we are not poor, desperately poor, there's a lot that we can do. Hmm. But you're right. We are invisible to men, but men rule the world. So I, I hear this a lot. Older women who look old because they have, gray or white hair because they they carry themselves as older. They go somewhere, let's say to, to an office or to a um, healthcare or whatever, and they are ignored. They are they, they are postponed. Somebody else walks in and gets attention before they do, in a way they feel very invisible. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to speak up and say, hey, excuse me, I was here first. That's a, an entirely different podcast. It's it's a separate one entirely about the notion of beauty and where that comes from and how we end up invisible. But that's a conversation yeah. for another day, right? So I heard you once years ago at the Adelaide Writers' Festival and somebody said to you in the audience, you know, when do you write? And thinking that, it, and, and I think the the intention of that question was, you know, was it when creativity hits you? And you were very, very de- decisive with your answer. I think you said, I start, you know, January at the 8th at 9am and I write from 9 to 5. And so I was really impressed by that. I was so impressed by your response. And I guess in a way, de-glamorizes writing, if you like, or and and it is a full-time job. So talk to me about that. Has your routine changed? Has no. you as a writer changed as you got gotten older? Talk to me about that. No, now I have more experience. Um, but but I am very disciplined. I start my books on January 8th. I work every day and uh, many hours. But now I am more relaxed than before. I'm still disciplined because I'm used to it. But uh, but I'm, I'm I don't feel this anxiety that I felt before the anxiety of will I be able to do it I, it needs a lot of work I need to be more hours here and wake up in the middle of the night and start working again that's gone because now I know that I'm not in a hurry uh, that the books are not dictated to me from the beyond 
I create the books. So I have an idea, I research, and I write. So it's my book, and it's going to happen again. I don't have to think that this is the last time that I would, the last book that I will be ever be able to write. No, I, I'm, I have a little bit more self-confidence, but it has taken a lifetime. Mm. Uh, you know, I've spoken to many writers on this podcast, I think over 400 over a few years. And one of them in particular, who is a prolific writer and a well-known writer, he said to me that every time he sits down to write a new book, it's as hard as the first. It is hard, but you know, you can do it. Yes. And before you didn't. Yes. Uh, there's always a way of telling a story. Mm. And sometimes it takes week to get the right narrative voice and the right tone and the, and you go back and, and it doesn't work and then you start again. But I have never abandoned the project. I always finish what I start because I know now that if, if I dedicate enough time, if I sit with the story long enough, I'm able to tell it. Do you write chronologically, say from start, beginning to end, or do you write yes. snippets? Oh, you do. I have never tried to write in, in, in pieces, except when I have written short stories. But it's a style that I love, and I wish I could do it. But my mind works in a very chronological order. And also, maybe because uh, I research so much, the research also, in a way, is chronological for me. I write a lot of historical novels. In a historical novel, you have to be very accurate with the facts. So for me, it's easier if I follow a chronological order. Mm. So The Soul of a Woman is a memoir, if you like. But what I liked about it so much was really it's it's a memoir with a cause, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> That's very nice. A memoir with a cause. That's perfect. Yeah. Do you like that? That's how I felt when I put it down. It's not just your story. It's that you're telling us, you know, layers of stories and and layers of history. Do you think you've got another one in you? Is that what happens? That this this story is of the moment now, right? And it's it's beautiful, but it wasn't the entire story, was it? Well, I don't know. Uh, right now, I started on January eighth a novel, and I hope to finish the novel. I don't know, within a year or a year and a half. What is the next project? I have no idea. I never planned the future because I realized that the future is full of surprises. So many things can happen that it's useless to plan it too much. It is. The future is full of surprises and it's exciting. I can't thank you enough for your time, Isabel. Thank I mean, this, you so much. This has been an absolute privilege. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with your podcast. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, 
grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.